Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. George Washington is known today as the father of our country, but during his day, some people actually didn't think too highly of him. Now there's a lot of details of his life that most people actually don't know. Washington's father died when he was 11. He had almost no formal education at all because his family could not afford school, the expensive school, in a day when there was no public education. He never visited Europe. And John Adams once had a comment about Washington. Listen to what he said. This is not the most kindest thing. He said, George Washington is too illiterate, unlearned, and unread for his station and reputation. Ouch. So here is what Washington did. He developed his mind through his own reading program. I like people like that, that can just find a book and read and learn on their own. Well, this unlearned aristocrat surprised the country because he burst into the spotlight of leadership by commanding a frontier militia at just 21 years of age. He delivered an ultimatum to the French forces who were pushing into the English lands in the Ohio Valley. Now, Washington himself, he was actually a guy that brought people together. He was a peacemaker. You see, at the time, there was some brilliant politicians. I know that's an oxymoron, but there were some brilliant politicians, men like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. And these men had followers, people who liked to debate, people who liked to argue back and forth about their different political views. In Washington, he actually used great skill and brought these two sides together. This was a man with moral convictions. He provided freedom for his slaves after his wife's death and guaranteed their support in his will. In the 1830s, these freedmen were still actually receiving payments from his estate. Perhaps what I love about him the most is that he was completely unselfish. When Congress offered him command of the Continental Armies, he refused a salary. He accepted only reimbursement for his own expenses. He made the same suggestion when he became president. And the only reason that he accepted a salary was because Congress refused his suggestion and set the salary for the president at $25,000 a year, which, man, that was huge. That was a huge amount of money back in those days. Try living off that now. Here was a guy who charted the course of our nation, and he showed great wisdom in what he expected for the country. And what I think is so great about him is he didn't aim at power, and he didn't aim at expansion, but instead, what? Independence. Listen to what he said in his farewell address. He expressed the hope that the country would have the time, and I quote, to settle and mature its yet recent institutions and to progress without interruption to that decree of strength and consistency which is necessary to give it 
humanly speaking, the command of its own fortunes. Now, many Americans did not expect greatness from President George Washington. His success surprised and it impressed the critics of his day. And if we look at the nation of Israel, they also had some impressive men on their own history. And just like the people of our country, with our respect for men like George Washington and some of the founding fathers, the book of Hebrews addresses people who looked up to the prophets maybe a bit too much. You see, when we think about Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos, we must admit that, hey, the prophets, they were pretty impressive. They were pretty awesome. And so it doesn't surprise us that some of the believers admired them a bit too much. They had some strange doctrines creeping in. They got a little carried away with what they thought of angels. Maybe they even worshipped them. Now, we don't know which man for sure it was that was used by God to write the book of Hebrews. Some think it was Luke, and I tell you why they think that. The Greek is closer to how he wrote it. Martin Luther thought it was Apollos. Tertullian thought it was Barnabas. Silas has been suggested. I doubt, very much doubt, it was Paul. Origen said this, there's a lot of things I disagree with Origen on, but he said this, that whoever it was that wrote this epistle is known to God alone. I think he was right on that point. According to Hebrews 13, it was someone that was well known to the believers receiving this epistle. It was someone that worked with Timothy. But the introduction in Hebrews is is like no other New Testament epistle. It's completely different from the other books of the New Testament. There's no introduction of the writer. There's no mention of the original audience. There's no benediction at all. And I think the writer wanted the people first receiving this letter to give their full attention to the greatness of Jesus Christ. And it just could be that the author did not identify himself to make it known, to make sure the people reading this letter at first would make Jesus Christ our focus as we read this epistle. Now, this is now the second generation of believers. Someone needed to remind them how important Jesus the Christ is. And that is when God inspired this human author to put the quill to the sheepskin, if you will, and start writing these words down. You see, by this point in time in history, it was somewhere around 65 or 66 A.D. And the Jewish Christians, man, they were having a bit of a hard time during those days. They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. The Gentiles didn't like them. And the Jews, now they were shunning them. And some of the Hebrew believers found themselves without homes. They found themselves without jobs, without the support of the Jewish community. This was written to the Hebrew Christians. Maybe in Italy. Maybe in Italy. Why Italy? Not just because I'm Italian. I'm not just throwing that out there for you guys. But notice what Hebrews 13.24 tells us. It says that, those from Italy greet you. That's the most natural understanding is of Italians living in other parts of the Roman Empire. And the idea seems to be that it was written to the Jewish Christians living in Rome. Now remember what was happening during this period of time in history. 
written around 65 or 66 AD. Emperor Nero, do you remember him? He was a madman. He was insane. He was crazy. And his persecution against the Christians in Rome, it was at its height. It was at its worst. In 64 AD, a fire broke out in Rome that destroyed a large part of the city of Rome. And it was thought that Nero did it himself to make room for his new palace that he wanted to build. In order to shift the blame, he accused the Christians of causing this disaster. And this distrust of the Christians, this distrust of the believers and all their talk about the end of the world coming, it made people suspicious about what they believed. And many believers in Christ were brought to trial, and then they were actually tortured to death. Tradition teaches us that this is when Peter and Paul died in this persecution. This was a difficult time for Hebrew believers in Jesus. The Jews, like I said, didn't like them. And now being a part of the church was leading to a death sentence. So what was the easy path? What was the easy way out? Well, the easy way out was to return to the synagogue because the Hebrew faith had legal protection underneath Roman law. There was safety in being a Jew, but not in being a Christian. And it was easy to go back to the faith of their fathers. It was easy to go back to following the law and the teachings of Moses and the prophets. But then, just then, the letter to the Hebrews began to circulate to strengthen their faith, to firm up their convictions, to give them strength to persevere during the storms of persecution. And so the writer of Hebrews, he presents a simple theme, that Jesus Christ is better. Learn that as we go through this. Christ is better. He is better, and what he has accomplished is better. The superiority of Jesus the Christ is the theme found throughout every single chapter of this book. And so now the author, he steps forward to tell us that the God-man, Jesus the Christ, he is greater, much greater than the prophets of old. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua and even greater than the law and its priesthood. Why would you turn away from him? Why would you drift away from him? Why would you drift away from the gospel of Jesus Christ? Notice how we begin. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. God spoke. At times, if you study the Old Testament, you see that he even spoke to men face to face. God spoke. You see, God has revealed himself to mankind. God spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets. Fathers, referring here in this case, on this page, to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God spoke through the progress of revelation. A little here, a little there, at various times, not all at once, kind of like the drip of a coffee maker. Drip, 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 God spoke. The Old Testament actually took about 1,000 years to produce the authoritative canon of Israel from the ministry of Moses to that of Malachi. It lasted from 1400 to about 400 B.C. Each prophetic announcement built upon the revelation that had been given before and prepared the way for the future believers. 
It was the gradual revelation of God. It makes you think of Isaiah 28. Do you remember the verse? It says, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. It says here in, in Hebrews that God spoke in various ways. Do you remember that he appeared as the angel of the Lord to Abraham? He spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. And on Mount Sinai, what did he do? Well, he inscribed the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone with his own hand. God spoke through visions. Daniel received dreams and visions. God spoke through angels and through his people, through his prophets. Peter also wrote about this in the New Testament when he wrote that prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or literally carried along by the Spirit. And then Paul wrote in 2 Timothy that scripture is God breathed. For centuries, a long line of prophets spoke and wrote God's word under the supernatural guidance of the Spirit of God. The warnings and rebukes that came from the prophets flew off their lips like arrows from a bow to strike at the hearts of those who heard. Servants of God with this prophetic gift include Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Jonah, Malachi, and John the Baptist. But notice as you look in your Bibles and notice this thought here that there's something going on between verse 1 and verse 2. As much as we value the Old Testament, the revelation of God was incomplete. You see, the Old Testament, it looked forward to the New Testament. The final revelation of God to man was yet to come. And so we read in verse 2 something else. We read that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the worlds. It was July the 20th of 1969 when astronaut Neil Armstrong stepped off an aluminum ladder and he planted his feet on the lunar surface of the moon and the president of the United States he then addressed the nation and he said the greatest event in human history occurred when man first put his foot on the moon well I disagree I disagree completely. I contend that he got it wrong because the greatest event in human history was when God put his foot and stepped on earth. When God was here, he stepped out of heaven to be born in a manger. And this is why scripture says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. You see, Jesus humbled himself, and the Father exalted him. God spoke. God spoke in times past by the prophets, but now in these last days, God has spoken by his Son. Meaning this, it is the revelation of who God the Son is, and it is the revelation of what he has done for us. Jesus is the final and fullest expression of God to man, the coming of the Messiah. The death, 
and resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, they all tell us that we have entered into new territory. We have boldly gone where mankind has not gone before. In God's eternal plan, we are now living in the last days. Do you remember in Psalm 2, the father is addressing the son and he tells him, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You see, God the father has designated the son as his heir. The eternal son of God will inherit all things. This will be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus the Christ. He will rule over everyone and every single thing. Nothing stands outside of that circle. But he has not yet claimed the title deed to the universe. Christ has not yet asked for what is rightfully his. Jesus is the creator. He made the worlds. He made all space throughout all time is the idea in the text. The Son is the Lord of all history. He is the ruler over the created realm. And as the perfect creator, he is the sovereign ruler over all creation, past, present, and future. Do you remember the words of Paul when he wrote, For by him all things, speaking of Christ, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created, what? Through him and for him. You see, Jesus, he made the universe and therefore it belongs to him. The teaching of verse 2 is that it is not that man has taken this initiative to discover God. The Greeks tried that. It didn't work. But it is God. It is God who has taken the initiative to reveal himself to mankind. Prophets spoke the word of God, but Christ himself is the word of God. It was... January of 1994, when an earthquake lasted up to about 20 seconds, and it hit the San Fernando Valley region of Los Angeles, California, and it caused nearly $20 billion in damages and the deaths of dozens and dozens of people. And most of the city's power was lost because of the quake. And back then, most people just listened to radio stations. You didn't have the internet, of course. But the radio stations and the TV stations were all knocked off the air. But then the Griffith Observatory in L.A. began to receive these, these phone calls from people who were panicked. They were freaking out. I mean, it is California. Let's just say that. But they were all reporting something. They were reporting a strange sky. People even speculated on the phone that perhaps the silver cloud above them had somehow caused the earthquake. And after some confusion, the director of the observatory realized what was going on. You see, with the city lights made powerless by the earthquake, for the first time maybe ever, the people living in Los Angeles looked up and they saw a dark sky. And this scary, smoky, silver cloud that they reported was just simply the Milky Way galaxy. And they are not alone, by the way. Today, two-thirds of the population in the United States and one-fifth of the world, from where they live, can't even see it. Now, even more tragic are the people unable to see the glory of Christ. Speaking of the sun, verse 3 tells us, Who 
being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God the Son, he brilliantly radiates God's glory. It is brightness coming from a source, meaning this is not a reflected brightness like the light of the moon or the light off the top of my bald head. Just as the rays of the sun in the sky continually give us light and heat and energy, the Son of God eternally conveys the glory, majesty, and power of God from eternity past to eternity future. Christ had this glory before this world existed. The Son existed in eternal, continuous, unbroken fellowship with the Father. Jesus radiates the glory of God. No prophet could ever claim this, no matter how mighty they were. The prophets could reflect God's light, but the Son is the light itself. The Son of God, let's look at this wording, the Son of God is the express image of God, meaning he exactly represents God's nature. The Greek word was used of stamping a coin from a die. And in the Greek and Roman world, the coins represented the image of the emperor. So if you looked at a coin, you could actually recognize what the emperor looked like. And even if the die were cast away, you could determine what exactly was in the die by studying the coin, just looking at the coin. Why? Why was that true? Well, because the die reproduced itself in every detail of the coin. And this is the idea of the wording that is used here to show the relationship between the Son and the Father. You see, we can't see God the Father, but all that is in the Father is in the Son. By studying the Son, we learn of the Father. And just as an impression on a coin becomes an expression of a die, Christ is a revelation of the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of God to man. Why? Because he is God. Don't let anybody ever tell you anything different. The Greek is rich here. I wish you guys could know how rich it is. It's unbelievable. It asserts that the Son shares in everything that God is. It is in his divine nature. It is a part of who he is. There's authenticity represented here. Jesus is the real deal. The Son is the same in his being, in his essence, as the Father. The Son is fully God and fully man. Distinct person from the Father, but Jesus is God, not some created being. The Son of God is all that God the Father is. You know, God is omnipresent, so no man has the ability to see the Father. But God the Son, he took to himself. It wasn't that he was a victim. It wasn't that he was forced to do this. He took to himself a perfect, complete human nature in order to reveal God to man. So if a person wants to see God, then all you need to do is look to Jesus the Christ. The Son is a full and perfect revelation of what is in the Father. So even though we can't see the Father, we know the Father because all that is in the Father is in the Son. Notice this next part in verse 3. The Son upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, the Son upholds not just this world, not this little rock that we're on, but the entire universe, everything. He sustains this creation not by just physical strength, but by his word. 
Colossians tells us that by Christ all things consist. He carries all things forward on their appointed course. You see, Christ created time. Christ created the universe. And he is the one who sustains it. He is achieving his predetermined purpose for mankind as he guides the ages towards the removal of all of his enemies, meaning that God governs the nations. Don't worry about it so much. God governs the nations to accomplish his will. Not only is the son the architect of creation, but he's the one holding it all together and he's driving it to its appointed end. You know, scientists tell us, right there you ought to be suspicious, but scientists tell us that the earth moves at 67,000 miles per hour in space and that the mass of the earth is somewhere around 13 billion trillion tons. And with the technology that we have today, they estimate that with the Hubble telescope that there are 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Don't you think that if Jesus Christ can uphold the universe, that he can bear our burdens? You see, he wants to be the glue that keeps our lives together. In verse 3, it tells us that Jesus by himself purged our sins. Purged simply means cleansed or purified. He made purification of our sins as no one else could. He removed the penalty of our sins. The sin of Adam... It plunged this world into darkness and into death, sin and suffering. But the last Adam, Jesus the Christ, he chose to suffer for me. He chose to suffer for you. He chose to die on the cross for our sins. And he drove out the darkness and he banished death. What had been poisoned by sin was cured by the blood of Jesus Christ forever, once for all, never to be repeated. He sacrificed himself as a sin offering and as a trespass offering on the cross. And by his work as the ultimate priest, the glory of redemption is far, far greater than the glory of creation. The Son of God did not come down to impress us just with his glory but to purge our sins, to purge all of creation. And then Jesus, notice what the text says. It says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sat down suggests something. It's there for a reason. The words of scripture are there for a reason. It suggests the formal act of assuming the office of high priest. You see, here's the contrast that is in the text, that's there for everyone to see. The Levitical priest never finished his work. He couldn't. He never finished it. Not once. The blood of the bulls and the goats had to be repeated over and over and over again. And in the tabernacle constructed by Moses in the wilderness, and in the temple that was built by Solomon, there were no chairs where the priests could sit. There weren't. You see, the absence of the seats testified that their work was never finished, it was never accomplished, and that men could not sit in the presence of a holy God of Israel. But what does it say? It says that the work of Christ for the purging of our sins is done, it is finished. Jesus sat down. Skip ahead to chapter 10 with me. The writer tells this of Christ. And he says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, who? Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God 
from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. He sat down at the right hand of the Father when he returned to heaven after his ascension. He took the place of honor and authority next to the Father. Psalm 110, the writer is going to come back to this in the text, but Psalm 110 teaches us this. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who is that? That's God the Father and God the Son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. See, Jesus actually quoted this same psalm during his last week of public teaching. So be careful in your own mind and in your own understanding of Scripture that where Jesus is sitting now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. This is not the same as the Davidic throne which will be on the earth in the future. Jesus will begin his rule over Israel on earth as the Davidic Messiah after he returns to the earth at his second coming. Revelation 5.13 describes a scene in the heavenly throne room where men and angels worship God as creator and redeemer. And there we see that they will cry out, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. You see, no mere man, no matter who they are, no angel, no matter how much power they have, can stand at the right hand of the Father to receive Praise and glory that is only due to the divine majesty. But the exalted Son, Jesus the Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, is worthy to sit in this place of glory and receive the worship of all creation. This is a position of honor and authority. Now these opening words of the book of Hebrews, they point to the full deity of Jesus the Christ. And the first audience, the Hebrew Christians, they faced the temptation to abandon their walk with Jesus, to walk away for a return to the Jewish laws and faith. And they received a strong reminder here that Jesus is the creator. He's the prophet. He's the priest and king. Verse 4 in your text. Having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. In the Old Testament, there's actually places where the angels are called the sons of God. Do you remember that from your own study of Scripture? But that is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Son, God the Son, who inherited, seated in the most exalted position in the universe. Jesus is better. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is better. He is higher than the angels because he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is better than the angels because the Son created the angels to minister, to serve. You're going to see this term better all throughout Hebrews, that Jesus is better. When the Son took on human nature, when He endured death for us, when He rose from the dead victorious and ascended into heaven, He inherited a name that no angel ever has the right to bear. Now what name was this? You see, just as a son bears the name of his father, so the Son of God would bear the name of God, Yahweh. Verse 4 is saying that when the Son took on human form, He became a little lower in position a little lower in position than the angels, but has been exalted through his death, resurrection, and ascension. His divine sonship has now been declared to all mankind. And again, from Philippians 2. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, 
and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, at the return of Christ, every knee, oh, they will bow before him to acknowledge his lordship over his eternal kingdom. At the close of World War II, the Japanese government was told that it must surrender unconditionally. But their leaders said this. They said that they needed more time to convince their troops, to convince their military and the people of their nation that this was the right thing to do. It was May of 1945 when the Allied powers began to draft a document of unconditional surrender. While preparing this document to be released to the media, a word was used that could have two different meanings. It could have meant, we're considering it, or it could have meant, we're ignoring it. Those are two different definitions. It all depended on the context of the word. And so the message that our government understood from the Japanese, based on a mistaken translation, said, we are ignoring it. We are ignoring it. Now, the translation was made available on July the 28th of 1945, and it stated that the Japanese had made up their mind not even to consider it, not even to bother considering it, but instead to ignore, ignore the demand to surrender. And therefore, as you well know, President Harry Truman, on August the 6th of 1945, ordered an atomic bomb to be dropped on the city of Hiroshima where more than 90,000 people died. And then another bomb was dropped on Nagasaki and another 40,000 people died. And then shortly after that, the Russians came and invaded Manchuria. In less than three weeks, over 150,000 people died because of the mistranslation of one single word. You see, that word forever changed the world. I have a word for you today. It represents the name of the creator of everything in this universe. It represents the one who upholds all things and bears all things. This one word has more power than all the nations of the world combined. Throughout history, great men have come and gone. But Jesus, he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And what an amazing son he is. He owns it all. He made it all. And he is absolutely Lord of it all. Jesus is the one who heals the sick, sets the captives free, and changes the heart of man. And he's not sitting back in heaven with little interest in what is going on in this world. Jesus stepped into history to let us know of his love. And it's this love that moved the Apostle Paul to write this. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Trust him, count on him, and know his love, the Redeemer of men the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word 
is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com. Or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.